Gary, you know that shoe repair place at the end of the block? Well, if they don't get some business, they're gonna have to shut down and make way for one of those gourmet coffee or cookie stores. I like coffee. I like cookies. Yeah, of course you do. And you know why? Because you're a bunch of yuppies. No, it's your go-go corporate takeover lifestyles that are driving out these mom-and-pop stores and destroying the fabric of this neighborhood. My guest today is Nicholas Petit. He's a visiting fellow at Stanford University's Hoover Institution, a professor of law at the University of Liège in Belgium, and an expert in antitrust and its applications to the digital economy. He joins me today to, dis to discuss all things big tech, regulation, and antitrust. Nicholas, welcome to the podcast. Glad to be on the show. Now, let me uh, just start off by asking you a question of sort of why, why is this an issue. It doesn't seem so long ago that these big technology companies were heralded as, you know, the crown jewels of the American economy. The uh, CEOs, you know, were visiting the White House. Now it seems almost all of a sudden that they're problems, that these big companies are what's wrong with the American economy. Uh, they're being blamed for suppressing innovation, uh, that they're bad for workers. Uh, and there's political attacks on them from both the le uh, the right and the left. So sort of how did we get to this place where what seemed like to be these big companies, very successful, hire lots of workers, we love their services. How did it, we get to the point where they're, where, they're a big, where they're considered by some to be a big economic problem? That's a very good question. So as you um, know, we are no longer living in an entirely uh, national or, or American uh, world where uh, these companies, you know, only operate in the U.S. And so part of the concern about these companies, you know, in, in regulation ties back to initial initiatives taken by other nations or other trade regions like the European Union, you know, back in the day in Microsoft. So there is more appetite in other regions of the world for regulating what's big. And it seems to me, you know, coming from the U.S. Uh, a few months ago, that uh, part of that appetite has actually uh, reached the United States, where people increasingly seem to look at these companies as the Europeans looked at them uh, 20 years ago. So what's interesting um, about these companies uh, is that they are obviously very big. Um, they are big in market cap. They are they are big in in profits. So the numbers are extremely big. They scale very fast. They become extremely important in the economy. Um, they play a central role in the economy, not only in terms of their interaction with other businesses, but they also play a big role for, you know, everyone, everyone's eye. They're, they're essentially B2C company. All the fangs have this in common to be essentially companies which, which, uh, which trade with, with consumers, with, with users. And so they are very visible in everything they do. And, now you, and just interrupt you. Yeah. You did mention Fang, and just uh, for the listeners, Fang acronym: Facebook, Amazon, Apple, Netflix, uh, Google. That those are your Fang companies. Yeah, that's right. I mean, you can you know you can play uh, with the acronym as much right. as you want. You could say sure. you know Fang again, and and add Microsoft to the mix, and and Oracle, and other companies. Uh, the Chinese have their own acronym for their for their large internet companies. But so the sort of common threads to, to that FANG thing, which is a Wall Street construct, essentially, is basically we're talking about companies uh, of the Internet age, uh, the latest Internet age, and they have uh, a presence uh, in consumer markets. Right. And so 
a bunch of those companies have been so those companies they also come up with so some so they they come up with something very impressive, which is their uh, sheer commitments to innovation and changing the ways and the conventions of uh, markets, uh, the ways markets operated uh, to date. But they also come up with a range of things which consumers and policymakers do not really like, and they come up with, you know, sort of, you know, scandal. So, you know, trying to disrupt markets as much as those companies have done, you know, comes up with, you know, making some mistakes in, in the process. And uh, so, you know, we, we, we heard a ton about the uh, Facebook Cambridge Analytical scandal. Right. Uh, we, we heard a lot about, you know, Amazon being very, very, very tough in terms of its relations with with workers or with municipalities, you know, in terms of, you know, uh, uh, setting up a choir somewhere and uh, or Uber, you know, disrupting the taxi market, not requiring its its drivers to or maybe not able to require its drivers to acquire a license. But that idea of uh, uh, permissionless innovation creates a lot of friction with the public opinion. And so um, this appetite that I was talking about uh, a few minutes ago in terms of, you know, in the U.S., the appetite for regulating these companies is growing. It's basically an appeal to consumers who understand that those technologies comes with uh, uh, many costs and there's many losers around. And, and, and henceforth, um, uh, we, we, we move towards a, a climate, uh, a demand for regulation, which looks a bit like, you know, the sort of European uh, right. demand for regulation back in the day. All right. So maybe the simplest explanation is that you know, while they're, while, you know, you, while what happens in other countries does affect, you know, sort of what happens here, we, you know, ideas, you know, move from, you know, one region to the other. It might just be these companies have suddenly just gotten, they've crossed some sort of threshold where they're, you know, they're so big. And especially as we're talking, we were talking about the race of which is going to be, who's going to be the first trillion dollar uh, company won by Apple, that it's almost inevitable when companies are sort of that big and sort of that present in our lives that, that eventually governments, government, there's, there, there will, of course, be problems. They will be publicized because they're such big, uh, well-known companies, and government will have a reaction. So we probably shouldn't be surprised that there's now sort of what they call this uh, tech lash against these firms. And then just, you know, when I know when I talk about this, uh, when I talk about these uh, these big companies, especially, you know, Amazon, Facebook, and Google, uh, people will say, well, gee, you know, they, they sure seem like monopolies. And I think we've all been sort of been brought up to think, well, monopolies are by nature a bad thing. You have Amazon with uh, almost half the e-commerce market, Google with 90% of the U.S. search market, Google and Facebook with almost two-thirds of the digital ad market, Facebook, um, you know, three of the, you know, the biggest iOS social media apps are Facebook, you know, you got, you got you know, Facebook, Instagram, you know, you know, Messenger. So these are obviously big companies. And it seems, and it seems like, and it's certainly when these arguments presented to me that that that's that's the case that there that there is sort of this you know initial case that these are obviously big powerful companies and something should be done about them that the sheer their sheer size and sort of intrusiveness even though that word has a bit of a negative connotation in our lives means there needs to be something done about them right yeah so uh, the the, the points um, which one hears a lot about uh, in, in the press is is indeed that these companies are are monopolies I I come from the antitrust field where we define monopoly as a very specific uh, uh, thing. And, you know, monopoly is the ability to basically raise prices and limit outputs and do that over a period of time that's, that's quite significant. Now, when you look at these companies, of course, in terms of, you know, their market share and the scale that they have, you are looking at 
big organizations and, and hence the temptation to say, well, you know, these companies are monopolies. But when you look at what these companies do, and I'm not saying here that none of them is a monopolist, but when you look at what these companies do, uh, do sorry, uh, it seems very different from what, you know, the sort of old school textbook monopolists would do. I mean, these companies spend a ton of money in, in, in R&D. Maybe not all of them uh, spend uh, as much, but uh, there is a sense in which, you know, companies like uh, Google or Facebook spend a ton of, of dollars in, in R&D. Those companies provide essentially goods that are nominally free, even though we know that we pay to some extent a price in terms of the data, for instance, that we are we are transferring to these companies. But at any rate, I mean, you know, we get we get uh, it seems to me quite a good deal. At least, you know, the consumer behavior that we observe this in spite of the scandals uh, tends to to show that you cannot really bid free. Those companies also introduce products all the time, which is not what a monopolist would do. Uh, they increase their output all the time and their costs as well are, are increasing. So one of the things that I've done in, in previous work is I've tried to sort of uh, get away from the, uh, uh, you know, sort of New York Times, Wall Street Journal narrative that these companies are monopolies. And I've also tried to extract myself from the antitrust concepts that we have because, you know, to some extent there might be some bias in both camps in terms of categorizing those companies are monopolist or not monopolist. And I've basically trying, I've basically started to do research into what people from the uh, investment uh, community, uh, uh, data financial providers and, and other uh, types of financial organizations uh, discuss when they talk about those companies. What's interesting with that is you're, you're talking about, you know, people who sell stock or people who buy stock, people who advise on buying or selling stock. And, those people are, are basically, you know, quite sophisticated people and not really interested in advancing any antitrust or non-antitrust agenda. They are basically trying to, you know, understand if a company is big and stable and profitable or whether a company is weak, small and, and, and adds uh, uh, dangers of, of disruption. And if you do that, so I've... I've got a lot of data based. Well, that, I mean, let's based, let's let's uh, yeah. get into it because right. the main reason you know I brought you on and where I sort of discovered your work was sure. because of a 2016 paper, technology giants, uh, the Molligopoly hypothesis and holistic competition primer, in which, as you began to say, argues that sort of looking at these in a tradition, looking at these big technology companies in a traditional and antitrust consumer, what they call the consumer welfare standard. Well, that is certainly an incomplete way to look at these companies first. And second of all, looking at them at a, at, in a more holistic competitive way, which I, I think you're about to describe, would argue that we that, in fact, uh, we do not need to like be breaking these companies up or certainly right now or heavily regulating them. So why don't you tell me a bit about what you mean by holistic competition and what and what a monopoly is? All right. So um, it, it seems to me that those things, they are just not all the same companies, right? When you read about them, what people say about them, when you look at the numbers, you cannot really compare a company like Netflix, say, and, and Apple, on the other hand. They are drastically different companies. So I, I, I went to other uh, types of, of research done on these companies to try to understand the nature of competition around them. And when you read around them uh, and when you read about them in, in other uh, types of, of documents and, and analysis, what you, what you really understand is that uh, where the antitrust people tend to see monopoly everywhere, the business people or the financial people or the tech community tends to see oligopoly everywhere, oligopoly competition. So, you know, 
those competition, the, the FANG, they're, they're very often at, in competition against each other, even though they are not operating in the same market. So Google's in search, Facebook is in social networks, Amazon is in online retail. But, you know, the, the three companies tend to exert a competitive constraint on the other against each other, even though in antitrust we, we don't see that. We just see a very large dominant company when we see Google in search. And when we see, when we look at Facebook, we see a large dominant company probably in, in personal social networks. And so it's interesting that there is this sort of distinction in terms of how people with you know, sophisticated analytical tools cast a different name on those companies. The antitrust people and the press often talks about monopoly. The people working in financial markets or the people in tech would say, you know, there's intense oligopoly rivalry in those markets. And so I try to say, well, you know, maybe it's not, you know, one is wrong and the other is right. Maybe, maybe you know, both are right. And there is a sense, a sense in which there is some oligopoly competition. All right. So what I try to do there in the paper, and I'm writing a book about that now, is I try to understand how those tech companies at, at firm level uh, take how much competition they take from, from other companies. And so what you can see in a nutshell is that those companies take competition from companies which basically do the same types of products. So you could say Google takes competition from Microsoft when you know Google provides its search engine Microsoft as Bing. So maybe it's not much competition, but there's competition there. But what's more important is that you know a company like Google in its small oligopoly faces competition from, from more distant sources. So for instance, you know, you could think a company like Google is starting to take on competition from companies like AT&T, which which you know initially were not were not really search or internet companies. Um, also, those companies they take a lot of competition that's not really seen in the sense that they are basically competing against something that I, I call the the non-consumption. So they are basically you know trying to discover new products and new services all the time. Um, they are you know they are trying some sometimes really crazy things. I mean you know Google's a company that has been reported to work on things to extend the longevity of life but they're also doing stuff in driverless cars, right? So there's a ton of competition there in products which do not yet exist, but that competition exists a lot. And a lot of people in areas other than NHRS, you know, they say that represents a big constraint on the way the company today uh, operates in its business lines. And last but not least, the one thing I want to add is, uh, you know, another environment in which these companies take on a lot of competition, and that's something which is completely underappreciated in my in my community, it's basically inside the company. So if you think again on a, of an organization like Google, um, Google has several projects, or you could say, you, you could think of, of divisions which work on competing products. So for instance, you know, um, uh, Waze, uh, which is the navigation assistant service, competes to some extent with Google Maps, right? right? Mm -hmm. um, and so there is a sort of embedded rivalry inside those organizations, not in all of them, but some of them have that. And if we were really serious about trying to understand whether those companies are monopolists, we would need to look in all those dimensions and environments to, to bring that competition uh, to inform the process of applying an ITRUS or regulation. All right. all right. So, so you're saying we need to look, we need to look at, you know, these companies a little bit differently. So, so specifically, then, why why would you the the um, the consumer welfare standard, which is how you know I guess currently we look at um, we look at antitrust. So what? So that is just 
that's insufficient is what you're saying. While it may have worked with, you know, companies in the past, it doesn't work with these, with, with technology companies because they, because even though they may be very dominant or even monopolies or near monopolies within sort of their core businesses, uh, they behave differently than other monopolies in the past because they compete in all these other different ways. And therefore you need a sort of a different standard when judging them. Yeah. Okay. So that's again, a very good question. So I have no qualms against the consumer welfare standards as a, as a principle, if it was applied seriously. The problem is that in, in modern antitrust or regulatory applications, the consumer welfare standard across the world has not been applied consistently. So, you know, the consumer welfare standard can be applied basically two ways, and there's two ways I don't like. Uh, on the one hand, some organizations, advocates, and policymakers, they take a very strict view of the consumer welfare standard, and they would sort of, you know, say, well, you know, the goods there, they come for free, there's, there's no consumer welfare harm, there's actually a lot of consumer benefits, and hence, no regulation, no antitrust, nothing, right? So it's, it's sort of, you know, illusory, way to say, okay, this, the goods are free, output expands, you know, let's just not look into this. And of course, the problem with that, with that vision is that if there is something very special about this company, something completely new, well, then, then you know, we're missing it because by definition, we've excluded it uh, by relying on a sort of old-fashioned tool, which basically only looks at, you know, price and output as proxies for, for welfare. Right. So that's one, one way to do it. The other mm -hmm. way is the way the Europeans have done it, uh, which is basically saying, well, you know, we believe in consumer welfare, we apply the consumer welfare standard, but in fact, the way they, they operate is really not consumer welfare compliance. So basically, you know, we have today decisions by the European Commission, which say things like, you know, Google has abused the dominant position in the market for, in the market for you know, search and, and licensable operating systems like Android. But when you, and all that in, in the, in the official name of the consumer welfare standard, but this is of course, this is of course um, wrong, and and to some extent, um, it is uh, it, it is uh, delusional because the launching of Android is basically the most massive competitive attack ever attempted against Apple's Apple's closed ecosystem. Right. And so that, that you know, product, Android, is basically a very pro-competitive thing, which has, at the, at the high level of you know, high first-order principles, benefited consumers. And today, under the name of the Consumer Welfare Standard, you see a major competition agency in the world say, you know, this is a bad thing. I mean, you know, you can't really sort of square the Google Android, the European Google Android decision with, with any first-level consumer welfare narrative. Um, right. So I think that there is a problem here. When we so when we look at these companies and what you know, again what you know the the argument I often hear is, is the either they're, they're either monopolies near monopolies or just just unbelievably dominant in their core areas uh, and therefore government should act. And I think what you're saying is uh, they don't act like monopolists of the past. In fact, if you look at what they say about themselves, such as in their, you know, you know, in their, um, you know, various, you know, official government, you know, secure SEC filings. That's all they talk about is how much they're in competition <laughs> and how many with other companies, all the different areas, all the com it's just filled with competitive threats. These companies act like there's just one new development by some other company uh, that will, you know, render them obsolete. And that, and that, it's not just saying, but that's how they act as well. They, they, they certainly they're acting by how much how much they spend on R&D, 
Uh, the fact that they're constantly looking for what you might call, call sort of this kind of non-consumption, these sort of new areas are looking for what the new technology might be, uh, which may uh, you know totally you know turn their their sec- their sector upside down. So therefore, since they're they're competing against each other in all these uh, sort of other areas, and even within their core area, you, you can see how possibly they could be disrupted. Uh, you know, Google is dominant in search, but then again, if you go over to Amazon, maybe you're just going to, if you're searching for products, you won't even look at Google. You'll, you'll go straight to Amazon. So even in their core function, there's a lot of, there's a lot of competition. So we shouldn't worry that Google is, you know, currently 90% in search. Is that, am I getting that right? Yeah, I, I, I think that's, that's a fair uh, representation of, of what I'm saying to the extent that there is a, a lot of, competitive pressure that the tools of antitrust and regulatory analysis today prevent us from seeing. And so you would look at a lot more. You would look at you would look at things that currently uh, regulators don't look at. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, I would look at things like I'm going to tell you, like, concretely, you know what I'd look at. I'd look at, of course, the R&D intensity of these companies, because I don't think it's fair to say, you know, that, and even if you say that there's a monopoly in, you know, Google or Facebook or whoever, Amazon, um, Microsoft, what have you, um, it's not fair to say these companies are bad monopolies and deserve the bad monopoly treatments, you know, with fines, you know, of, of a magnitude of, you know, $5 billion. When you have companies which basically invest 20 to 25% of their, of their revenue in, their, in, in R&D, right? So I don't think you can really sort of, you know, claim that you've done something good when you are basically uh, using the antitrust machine gun against companies which are the sort of first class champions of, of innovation. And when I say that, you know, I say that on the basis of data, I mean, you know, I've done the, the number, the, the, the mass, and, and when you look at, at those companies, some of the fangs have higher R&D intensity than, you know, companies like pharmaceuticals, which sort of are, which have been for, for the past, you know, sort of first tier in terms of of R&D intensity. So you see companies which do that, uh, R&D intensity importance. Uh, you see companies which retain a lot of earnings in the company instead of basically dividending back the profits to say, you know, shareholders. And I know there's a lot of controversy. I don't want to sort of enter into that, but you see those companies that are keeping the money in the company. So they are very patient. They're, you know, keeping the money in the company in order to reinvest it in new product development and so on and so forth. When you you know, when you think about Facebook, I mean, there was this, that was fantastic, and I'm not sure people have, have done the, the exercise. People should read what Facebook said in its um, quarterly earnings uh, report, the earning call uh, transcript. So it's very interesting what you see here. You know, a lot of people when, you know, uh, uh, Mark Zuckerberg went to Congress, went to, uh, went to D.C. To, to testify. You know, people were sort of pushing him. There was senators said, you know, well, you know, how come you don't have a monopoly, you know? Um, there's no alternative. I can't, you know, move my stuff elsewhere. And so, you know, people were really prompt of, you know, thinking, ah, Google's a monopoly, no alternative. But when you read into this uh, transcript, what you see is you see a company which basically has uh, incurred a 50% growth in expenses related to making its business more compliant, not only with legislation, but with what users want. So Facebook has invested in the past quarter a ton of money in privacy, cybersecurity, and other uh, uh, you know uh, types of applications and costs uh, designed to make its platform you know less privacy intrusive. So I'm not saying that Facebook deserves to be praised for what it's doing on the privacy front. I'm just saying that this behavior 
denotes a response that you do not see with a monopoly. A monopoly doesn't care. A monopoly would just, you know, sort of, you know, say, well, you know, people are not happy. I don't do nothing. You see here a company that's doing that, and it's actually it's actually sanctioned uh, quite bad by by financial markets for for incurring those types of of expenses, right? Right. Right. So yeah. so again, uh, look at what they do um, instead of uh, looking at just the scale and bigness. Right. So you again. So you would look at these companies a little bit differently than traditional antitrust regulators. Well, some of the critics also would like to look at them differently. And rather than sort of looking at maybe a traditional consumer welfare standard, they'll say, well, you know, here, here's why these companies are bad. Uh, yeah, people love their products and you have a lot of free products and, and people would pay people would people. You would have to give people a lot of money to give up give up, you know, Google or not use Facebook and that sort of thing, so-called free products. But what, the, what some of the critics will say is, here's one of the big problems with these technology companies is even though you're, sending, you're saying they spend a lot of innovation, that they're also suppressing innovation, that, comp they, that, you, that new companies don't enter their fields. Like, you know, you won't have it. You don't want it. You're, you can't get VC financing to be a search competitor to Google or to be an online retailing competitor to Amazon. Uh, and they and so either you have companies that don't get started because they fear these big guys or perhaps the companies that do start, they get snapped up right away. So they never get to grow to become competitors that overall, even though they spend a lot of money on innovation, that overall they're suppressing innovation. And then you can blame that maybe on low U.S. productivity growth or what have you. So do you think that in any meaningful way these companies are suppressing innovation? All right. That's, again, a very good question. There are two things I want to say about that. So one of them is relates to, to the history of the computer industry. You know, a lot of people were very prone to say that the Microsoft cases, you know, back in the day in the U.S. and in Europe did a lot of good and, and were, you know, good to promote competition and innovation. But there is also... Um, a narrative which is quite strong, I think, and which we've not looked enough uh, um, in, in scholarship and in, and in policy, which is the extent to which, in fact, the existence of Microsoft monopoly created uh, by, its, by its very uh, structure and its very, uh, uh, it, its very strong uh, entrenchments, created incentives for people to innovate around and to create all the good things that we have today, which are software as a service, uh, mobile telephony and social networks and search engines. And so to some extent, you could, you know, if you think about, you know, really the, this idea of a platform economy, uh, the, the benefits of the platform economy comes from innovators who try to actually disrupt the paradigm and not basically, you know, try to create within the paradigm. So that's the number one point. To some extent, you, you, you know, in the economy, you'd need to sustain a certain degree of monopoly to make the real good and disruptive innovation possible, right? And so I think that narrative, we lose track of it uh, and there is some strength to it and we, we should think about it, keep that with us when we think about those well, monopoly. But, well, I mean, yeah. you sort of make a, uh, you know, an interesting point that even though the, the word monopoly is associated, again, with you know, a lack of competition, company, you know, companies being unresponsive, that certainly um, these companies do seem to be very responsive and indeed the fact that they have at least for a while, monopolistic or very dominant positions in these in these sort of their core businesses, also makes them very very profitable. And what are they doing with those profits? Uh, and, and all those those huge all those all that revenue coming in, they're using it to make the business better. They're using it to to innovate uh, both their current products as well as to invest in 
uh, sort of these new fields, whether it's, you know, uh, space exploration or autonomous vehicles or AI or what have you. So just because they're extremely dominant and uh, and seem to be, you know, making a lot of money, that's not a bad thing. Yeah, that's right. I, I'd say, you know, to some extent you could, you know, you have this very Schumpeterian understanding of, of, of the things and, you know, run the idea that the existence of those monopoly profits is, is, is basically conditioned for future improvements into disruptive innovations, things like, as you said, like space exploration, you know, driverless cars and so on and so forth. So there is a sense in which, indeed, you need to sustain a degree of monopoly uh, uh, power to, to, to promote the, f- the future investments, which, which will generate... Um, that's, sort of, that's sort of the Peter Thiel argument, too, isn't it? Yeah, it's, you know... Peter Thiel say, you know, you, you, you know, monopoly, every entrepreneur should, should really strive for monopoly. And, and he says, you know, if you want to go from, from zero to one, you really need to, to work on your, on your monopoly and you need, you really need to acquire it and, 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 and protect it. Now, of course, you know, a lot of people don't like that because they say that in the short term, so of course there's long-term gains, but in the short term, people people suffer from the monopoly from the monopoly behavior. Maybe with Fangs it's different because, like I said before, you know those companies do not seem to exact such a large monopoly tax as the one you would have had in the you know say nineteenth uh, or early twentieth century with railroads and and oil companies and so on and so forth because you get a lot of stuff for for free. But on top of that, you know there's and even if, even though you pay, you know, a price in terms of the private privacy laws that we register as as users, uh, we also, you know, enjoy a lot of um, indirect uh, positive externalities. So things like, you know, we save a lot of free time with those with those applications. We we are better connected, uh, and and so on and so forth. So I'd say Schumpeterian, uh, and maybe the loss to consumers in the short term is not as bad as it was back in the day. Yeah, do, I mean, do you think these these companies, uh, they start calling them like forever companies, that you can imagine there ever being a real threat to Apple and Google and Facebook and Amazon, uh, that because of their already their size and their economic power and the fact that they're hoovering up all that data, that these companies have unassailable positions really as far as the eye can see uh and you just can't you just ultimately cannot they may compete with each other but but you know that 10 years from now when we talk about the biggest most powerful companies we'll still be talking about google uh and amazon and facebook yeah so you know that's again it's again you know very good remark because you you, we we tend to look at companies as you know uh things which are when we when you think about google and we say well you know maybe google's going to be there again in 10 years and in 20 years and same for Amazon and so on and so forth. You know, maybe Google in 10 or 20 years is a completely different company from the company it is today. Maybe it's no longer a search engine. Maybe it's basically, you know, a driverless company. Maybe Amazon is no longer a sort of, you know, massive retail and you know, understand there's nothing to do in retail, even though I believe there's something to do there. And maybe it's just, you know, a sort of cloud or infrastructure or computing service company. And so the people will say, you know, in 20 years, we're going to be stuck with Google and Amazon and their forever companies. You know, this, is, this misses the point. Maybe these companies are going to change so much that they are going to reinvent themselves. And that's a good thing, right? It, it doesn't matter whether the company is called Google today and it's called Google again in 20 years. If the company has performed in ways which are more competitive than anti-competitive. And that's what I say in, in, in my paper and in my book. Um, this discussion is driven by 
you know, old ideas like, um, uh, you know, uh, old ideas and old symbols, things like General Electric or Standard Oil, you know, companies which have been there for, for decades and stayed in the same sort of line of business. Uh, we are seeing here companies which are much more nimble and mobile across industries. Um, if you think of a company like Microsoft, for instance, Microsoft is no longer the company that it was 20 years ago. Uh, so some people would say, you know, that's, that's due to antitrust, right? right. Um, that, yeah, that's, that's a big point. claim. Yeah. Well, let me, just because we're running out of time, uh, some people would also, they would also point out that, you know, there's a lot, there's a lot of concern about how these companies, especially the social media companies, how they deal with content, how they decide you know, when to, when to kick someone off their social network, when to, to, you know, to limit their access. And, and, and the fact that you have just a few, you know, Facebook, if you get, you know, suddenly if you don't have access to Facebook, you can't go over to the other Facebook. There's no, so, I mean, so maybe that's not a strictly sort of innovation competition kind of issue, but it does seem to be a pretty big issue that people are concerned about these companies that if you, if there's no alternative, and again, that was the point they were addressing to Mark Zuckerberg, that if there's not an alternative to, to Facebook and many of the alternatives are, are Facebook own, own companies, uh, then that, that itself is a good reason to break this company up, just to give people more alternatives. So you don't have one comp one company being sort of the gatekeeper for so much content. I, I think the breakup point is is sort of largely made up, and now people are sort of you know trying to come up with with stories and theories to to make it fly. Uh, it's mostly been a sort of retributive uh, idea advanced by people who are probably very disgruntled with the way these companies uh, uh, do some business. So uh, if you are indeed in a so here, here's the story: if you believe in the idea of network effects, which the people who believe in breakups normally generally do, you know they think they seem to buy that idea that you know there's net large network effects and answers companies have to be big. The, and the then bigger so, they get, sort of the more useful yeah, they are, and the bigger they the get, which they is are. probably exactly. why we're not going to have ten search engines and twenty Facebooks. You get it. So you know if you so if you're on that side, you think big is bad, and it's because of network effects, and then then let's break them up. Well, then it's completely logical because you know what's going to happen is you know day two you've, you've sort of broken up the companies. You have Google, Moogle, Zoogle, and Doogle. Uh, you know uh, as soon as one of those companies recruits one marginal user more than the other, well then you know it's going to sort of you know sort of precipitate, and you're going to have the network effect kicking again, and then so you're going to end up with another monopoly. So unless you you sort of roll out a sort of permanent supervision of industry by a regulator, which would be. Well, I, I believe I believe some people are promoting that that yeah, well, these companies okay. should be turned into kind of that. That's exactly what we need to do. Is that because of these network effects, and you're always going to have somebody dominant. That if that's the case, then government needs to have a very heavy hand with regulating these companies. What's wrong with that idea? Yeah, well, so I think then you know it's just a question of how to best use government resources. I think government resources should should be should be would be put at better use. To try to promote, you know, innovation outside of the platform to create the new things that you know the people need. If there's efficiency, and in fact, you know, it's interesting what what you're saying because I've I've been reading those uh, uh, papers by the Open Markets Institute and so on and so forth, and those people are ready to recognize that to some extent there are network economies, uh, um, sorry, economies of of, of scale and, and network uh, effects which are so large that in some industries demands to keep the monopoly in place, so not break it up, you know, things like red rules and so on and so forth, and put it under some regulatory supervision. Um, and then, you know, that regulatory supervision could be, you know, something if the concern is privacy, you have a tougher privacy privacy system. But I think most of the discussion conflates everything. If you believe in network effects, you know, why would you break them up? 
if you if you believe in network effects and you think that's serious, then let's not break them up and let's maybe you know regulate things which for which we we feel there's a, a problem and that's you know privacy and maybe there's a legitimate discussion to have whether the U.S. should adopt a federal law that governs privacy and you know what kind of law GDPR like or something more in the U.S. tradition of you know reasonable enforcement with with very well delineated uh, uh, types of property right there. Right, and but it sounds like you would be more interested. In- making sure that we have the sort of rules and regulations and economy that will, one that sort of forces these companies to compete with each other and will help create whatever the new competitors are, are going to be rather than trying to. Uh, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And so, you know, I, I basically advocate against those, those, you know, ideas of a breakup or an M&A ban, which will prevent platforms from buying startups. Because all the story, all those ideas, or all those theories are sort of, you know, made up without really considering the underlying economics. Uh, uh, there is a good sense in which, you know, acquisitions of startups can be a ve- can be very efficient. It provides liquidity exit when the, when the when the stock market doesn't work really well. Uh, it provides opportunities to scale for those companies. It provides opportunity for managerial advice and so on and so forth. So, you know, the sort of dominance uh, story here is sort of reversed. Today we're si- thinking that the platforms buy the companies to kill them because they are necessarily competitors. And in fact, I think the dominant, theory, the dominant story, the dominant thing that we see in industry is that in fact, this is not true. In most cases, than, than, than less, uh, these companies are actually trying to uh, buy assets which they can then scale and make better. It, it also, and we're, we're almost out of time here, uh, very rarely when I hear about competition in the technology space from people who are in very interested in breaking up these companies or regulate them, I, I don't seem to hear a lot about China. I mean, aren't there a lot of very powerful competitors arising in China that we, that at least if you're, you're thinking about regulating U.S. companies, you should at least sort of acknowledge that there is a, that it's not just, there's more to the world than just the United States technology companies. Oh yeah, yeah, that's true. I mean, as ever with China, we 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 never really know, right? It's, it's always a bit complicated to really assess their degree of technological sophistication for for what it is. But it is indeed true that um, these companies in China seem to have very sophisticated technological capabilities, combined with probably less impediments to collect data at a scale which makes sense for those types of technologies. So. Indeed, uh, we need to be careful here, and and we need to look at that. Um, I'm not too sure that here in the Silicon Valley, for instance, you know, people are really, you know, awakened to to the notion that those companies can can represent a competitive threat. It's, well, it's a hard question. Well, they don't seem to be uh, aware of it in Washington either. Listen, uh, uh, we're out out of time. Uh, I think it's been fantastic. Uh, my guest today has been uh, Nicholas Petit, who I would love to have back on when you hit when that book is out. Well, no problem. Thanks for the mistaken.